Books Do viewers, it's not every day that I bring on one of my ex-roommates to Books Do, and it's probably a good thing that that doesn't happen very frequently. But today I'm lucky enough to have my ex-roommate from about 40 years ago, I'm not ashamed to say, Irene Bouchine, who is not only an ex-roommate, but also an author. And Irene has written a book, kind of a book with a purpose. Uh, so I'm going to, uh, we're going to talk about the origins of the book and then do a short reading from it and then talk about what happened uh, after uh, information about the book got out. So Irene, welcome to Books Do. It's going to be you, so Irene. much fun and I'm so happy to have you here and I won't uh, tell any tales out no, of school. No, my let's mind say. is spinning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got to get together for a drink after right? the show. But anyway, okay, so um, you contacted me because you'd written a book, and um, I have another ex-roommate who's written a book, so uh, maybe it was something in the water, but can you tell us a little bit of background about your book? Well, um, as you know, the story is about two children who are trapped in the darkness of depression and what it takes for them to find their way out. And that's not a book somebody writes, I don't think, arbitrarily. Um, I didn't realize when I was raising my son what the issues were, but we were having, a, I was having a really hard time uh, uh, understanding how many um, ways he was being challenged. Uh, I could see he was not in a groove with the other kids as off, you know, as I had hoped, but I never could identify exactly what was troubling him. And this, uh, I wrote this book not because I decided someday I'm going to write about what it's like to raise a child with depression. I wrote the book because it actually, when my life started to calm down, when he was about 23, and uh, it seemed as though things were starting to um, feel like he was becoming a lot more okay, my life got quiet. It was very, very hectic when you're dealing with a child with depression and there's so much to think about and to worry about. So uh, um, it's so interesting to me and of course sad that, um, I, I don't think it's that depression's more prevalent. I think it's that now it's being diagnosed and um, acknowledged as an issue not only for adults but for children really for the first time. So when he was in the midst of it, were you kind of groping around? And I mean, your book is about groping around in the dark. Yes. Were you groping around in the dark Oh my too? gosh. Well, first of all, depression is a mental health issue that doesn't disappear. It is a part of someone's makeup. It's, it's mental. You know, you can't see a cast, can't see uh, a scar, but it's in there. So it's not like it, it isn't there. And even, you know, to this day, many adults have depression that might have had depression as children, but nobody knew what the heck they were dealing with. Um, I didn't understand what I was dealing with either, but when I started to um, realize how hard it was to get to him, I did a lot of research. I went to a lot of bookstores. I did online research for a book that would help me understand how to communicate with him. Um, even though he, there was really not a direct diagnosis of, of depression most, throughout most of his earlier years, there was um, an alienation and isolation that I was experiencing through him, seeing, being with him, knowing what he was no longer participating in uh, that um, had me searching for books about 
depression and things like that. And all I could ever find were books that were done by, you know, the professional industry, you know, is your mother depressed, mm. divorce and depression, you know, but more touching adults so that maybe a child would understand, oh, my mom is sad. Nothing focused on children Nothing at all. Nothing for the children to uh, even identify with it. I mean, and, and I, and so when I started writing this book, I didn't intend to write this book. I've never intended to be a writer, I don't think. Uh, I remember once when I was 19, and if you, you know the story, so you know that I really couldn't even read, but when I was 19, even though I was dyslexic and unable to read, some little voice in my head kept saying to me, someday you should write a book. And I think it was from my own life of living without being able to read. Ah, that's, I, I, that's an interesting connection, though. So w you do remember that little voice. I remember the voice. And do you think the voice was talking to you about, um, let me kind of share my struggle with anyone who goes through the same thing so we can, like, take comfort from each other? I or? think it was because I was fascinated that I was having that life and sort of kept having moments when I thought to myself, Phew, you just, <laughs> you're really living whatever's going on and, and uh I think, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on my part of this book, but the fact is, is that when you can't read and you can't learn that way, you have to learn another way. And I'm living this life uh, up at that point in my head saying, Phew, you're certainly living a life. So could that be the same for depression? Because if you can't live the life, the standard happy, happy, joy, joy life of a child, a teenager, an adult, that society demands us to do, mm -hmm. does it also work that you kind of work your way around it, whether it be by therapy, medication, whatever, to get to a place that may not be happy, happy, joy, joy, but that where you live a, a livable life? Let's, Correct, let's very say. similar. I mean, that's, I think, I had no idea, as I said, uh, that that story was part of this story. When I started writing this book, it was really, I was asleep. I woke up one morning, I was by myself. My husband was not home. I was, it was quiet. I think my son had moved to an apartment. And um, I had this, I woke up with a vision of a little girl. And I, st I had always, because as a, I just started writing memoirs, so I had a lot of pen pencils and pads around by the bed. <laughs> and I woke up and I started illustrating this little girl who I saw in my head. And she just kept going, she was on the stairs and she kept going down the stairs and up the stairs and down the stairs and up the stairs. And I thought, I, I was watching her wondering where she was going. And then at one point I saw that she was going down the stairs trying to help something that was stuck under there. That's all, I, that was like the, the framework for the book and it was totally subconscious and so I thought this feels real to me and so I need to keep with this and I started illustrating this little girl and I hadn't I hadn't been illustrating in years I've been I, I was always good at it really I, I could ex express myself through illustration great at Pictionary give me a line <laughs> and I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you a character you know and um, and so um, this little girl her story started to come to me through illustration and then I um, I I kept on it and and then I didn't know what it was about what I knew I knew it was about him and me. That's all. I knew this was a story about what I had been through, trying to get 
my son to have a happier hope. place. Have hope. Yeah. Oh, have hope. Okay. Because there is, uh, in the book, there is lack of hope and then hope. And just like the girl goes up and down the stairs, the hope appears, it glimmers, it disappears. So the stairs, I mean, I'm not trying to get too like representational here, but you know, the, the coming up and down of the stairs could be, you know, the, the seeking hope and then not finding it and retreating. And right. So um, did you do, when did the words come? I think it's fascinating that you started with the illustration. Um, well, the words came when I started knowing why she was going down the stairs and who she saw. Then there was this starting of, you know, I, I don't have the old pad of paper that I had. It was just a big art board. And I'd throw words in it because I felt like I, she, which by the way was me, which by the way is sort of the healthiest part of myself, a strong 12-year-old, 13-year-old, prior to um, the challenges I actually faced as a young adult, et cetera, et cetera, being a non-reader. Um, but um, she was strong, and she represented someone who could manage the situation. And so uh, when she started to talk to him, I started writing words on the pad. And then what happened was, long story short, because this is a long, you know, this took three and a half years to write, um, is I have a very dear friend who I note in the book as a, an acknowledgement uh, who lived across the street from me when I was growing up. And even though I couldn't keep up with her because she was brilliant, she went to Brandeis and I loved her, she was my best friend, we had an art connection and we were neighbors. So from the time we were old enough to uh, cross the street, um, I got to hang out with my friend and we did everything through art and play. And that was all we needed. And um, I feel like she helped me, she helped, she understood the greatest and most brilliant part of me, which was not very visible to a lot of people. Hmm. So when I realized I was really writing a book, I, we had, we, she came in from out of state and we were having breakfast or coffee and I said, I know I can't finish this book without, without an anchor because I'm too, I'm li lively, you know, too likely to go off into 300 tangents and I need I need to be accountable to somebody. Ah, so um, that's that's another uh, that's another interesting quality that um, that came to you, came to the forefront when it came to actually bringing the book to fruition. Yeah. So did she agree to be like your? Was it like a mentor, an editor, I an called, encourager? Yes, I called her a beacon. Even in the in the, I called her a be, the beacon for me, the place I could go. So anyway, her her name is Arlene, and Arlene said, and she's an artist. She's a, you know, I, I was into art. She was into art. She becomes an accomplished watercolor painter, and she's you know had a tremendous success and been recognized. She's quite something and and I'm this other person on the you know trying to write the book so she said she would she said I can do this for you and she's such a dear friend and such an old friend that it's like a non-negotiable it's like if she'd asked me I would have done it in a heartbeat so uh, but what I was asking her to do is something I'd never done before how did you how did you ask her to do it did you say did you put it in terms of can you keep me on track because you know it's interesting to think about uh, a role this person could play in anyone's life. I, I think we could all use somebody like that, and maybe it's our 
husband, wife, partner, but a lot of times it can't be because that person isn't the right person or doesn't have those skills. Correct. So um, it, it's almost like having a mentor, but for a very specific purpose. You didn't need a mentor for your whole life. You just needed almost like a project manager to kind of keep you on task. Well, yes and no. There were a couple things going on here. First of all, my friend Arlene is a psychologist, but that's not the, that was not the driving factor. The fr my friend Arlene knows me, um, knows me in the most honest and authentic way anyone can know me. Um, and um, I wanted to make sure that this book had integrity and honesty, that she knew me well enough to know whether my language was trying to reach for something that was, it was not my language. Mm -hmm. Also, um, I wanted, you know, this was a very deep and psychological book in many ways, and I didn't, I wanted to, to make sure it was credible to all who read it, therapists, doctors, parents, children. It had to sort of, if it was going to have be of any value to anyone. I wanted it to be mostly of value to children, but it can't be of value to children if it's not if it if it doesn't uh, follow the integrity of a sort of a, a, thera a therapist saying this is a good book. So in a way, she kind of vetted it in a way. Yes, yeah, sort of. It was it was even less than that. I mean, I sent her every illustration, every sentence, everything, and as I was going through it, she never changed anything. I, my Arlene never really changed anything. She just went, oh, 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 I see where you're going with this. And then maybe ask me a question. And then if I, then I might send her something two weeks later and say, you know something? I'm taking that whole thing out. I, I've moved on to something else. It was really just like. So when you started talking to her about it initially and when you decided that to reach out to her for help, did you envision like different um, constituencies for the book? When you started writing it, did you see yourself as a parent? Did you see your son as the child? Like, where, where, did, where did that go? Uh, no, I, I knew, I knew that child. I knew that was me. I knew Celia was surprising to me, the strongest human being I had ever, had ever been in my, younger, in my younger age. So it was like when, when you have a compromised life for many, many reasons, it's not always, you're not always the best of you. Very often you're kind of the worst of you because you're not centered. And I found Celia to be very centered. And I was grateful because I knew she was a piece of me. So there was, Does that so, make sense? Uh, it does, but it, it's interesting to think that that kernel sat inside of you and you know maybe emerged at various times, but um, remained like whole Completely. in you for, oh. for all those years. And um, I just, I have to, as an aside, I have to say that I just finished this book and I can't remember the title of it, but um, in the book, um, the lead character does something horrible and, and to another person. And in the plot has him like kind of forgetting about that he did it for 20 years. And then in the middle of a tennis game, he kind of wakes up and says, oh wow, I really did something awful. I'm like, this is so unrealistic because if you had really done something awful and if you had a conscience, and he appeared to be a man with a conscience, if it receded into the background, okay, but you could never like totally forget it. So um, did you ever, did you feel the presence of this, this strong girl at various times in your life or was it only when you started drawing that she came in? 
Well, um, I, she, she reappeared to me. Let's just say I think she was the voice inside of me always that had the courage to do the right, to figure out, you know, when you have to figure things out and you're, you know, afloat by yourself with no one else understanding, as is people who are suffering from many different illnesses, that, um, um, that her um, perspective and courage kept me, you know, was, in, was part of me, but I never identified her. It was just like, you know, we all have different, remember ourselves at three-year-olds, remember ourselves at whatever. So early childhood, I have a master's in early childhood education. Early childhood is the most profound period of a life. And Except it's, that we can't remember it most <laughs> of the Some of us. Right? I remember mine pretty well. <laughs> and I think it was the, um, and because I, I work with little ones, I am so totally aware, I have worked, um, at how important it is that you give them strength at that little age and you try to give them encouragement and honesty, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so I, I, I had, uh, I, I don't want to go into it too deeply because just to say she did reappear to me. Um, and I had not known where she had gone, um, but I said I was chopped up. So the, I really was living in sort of in staccato psychological spaces because of the way my life played out for a long, long time. No longer. I'm totally whole now, thank you. But um, having that happen, she sort of disappeared. The strength of me sort of disappeared for me for a period of time. And so then, um, okay, so then you have your mentor, your drawing, your writing, when it, or at what point do the various audiences appear, uh, come to you? Like, I think this would work for parents, educators, children. The reason, I mean, I wrote this book without, um, I, I've had opportunities to think about turning it into a picture book or why, you know, doing stuff with it and maybe getting an, an agent or maybe getting a publisher, which certainly sounds like it would make, the li make life easier. It's really a lot of work to have a book and hope that someone will read it. But um, anyway, um, what in each situation, and I ha I've had a great opportunity to actually recreate this book to fit something else, but I really felt in my heart that I needed to tell, I just needed to tell the story, and I didn't know I was telling it for anyone but for me quite honestly. I wrote the story because this is a story I needed to look at and tell myself and see. I mean, I have spent all these years, not just my story, but raising a, a child who needed so much um, help and attention. And in ways I had nobody, I knew nobody else was, was doing that. And, and the reason that this story had to be told is because because I had to go into a dark place that I'd never been in before. And in some way, it's the gift that my son gave me. Because had I never gone into the dark space, maybe on a lot of emotional levels, I may never have been able to clarify for myself. Hmm. So was his face in front of you during any parts of the writing? Not literally. I say through the illustrations, I absolutely. But not, uh, and, and oh, I'm, I, I, oh, I'm sorry. Actually, his face was not in front of me, but the language was all ours. That, ah. that is not made up language. That is real. Ah, so these, these actually, so in a few minutes, I'm going to ask you to, to do a little bit of reading. But, right. Um, so it was his voice. It was his voice. That came through <coughs> on the page. Yeah, and that was, um, yeah, he, 
I wanted this book to be truthful. And um, it, I didn't know it was going to be also about me, honestly, when I wrote it, because it was just about this girl going up and down the stairs to try to help someone else. But ironically, after three and a half years of writing and putting it together, then, then I showed up. And then it became about me, too. And then that's why um, I have to say one of the pages you chose was, as I said, oh, this is great. Eileen really gets this. Well, speak, <coughs> so I would like our readers to be able to get a hint uh, as well. So um, why don't you set the stage? Because I, I'm, um, it's a long enough book so that I'm not able to show, we're not able to discuss Correct. or show every single page. But I, I, I did pick out the pages that, re that really um, call to me and would be good samples to show mm -hmm. viewers so that, you know, if they're in uh, kind of similar situations, not only with a child or a family member who's depressed, but also in recognizing that kernel within them of strength and courage within themselves that maybe needs a little help in, in coming out, then I'd like to show that to them. So why don't you set the stage of the book and then um, I did put orange stickies yep. on so you can will show um, the illustrations and simultaneously when you're reading it. So why don't you start us off with the first page, which I think it's page five, which I, I just, the opening was, it's a, a very good opening. It grabs you right from the get-go, I think. Thank you, thank you. One morning in late summer, Celia sat peacefully on the top step of her back porch, watching the leaves turning in the breeze. So, I mean, this, this is the start for the book, and it's very peaceful. Um, it's just how you can, it's the words to me portrayed what a child might be just, you know, sitting on, a, on the steps, just not thinking about much, and, and summer, and the illustration is perfect. And then what happens after that? Um, well, you, you mean in terms of just, um, what happens is she gets interrupted. And so that moment, I, I love that moment of peace so much. I mean, for me, it's that moment. And then it was interrupted, so she goes into action. And um, <clears throat> she hears something, feels like she needs to follow the sound because it's an alarming sound, sort of like crying, but she's not sure what she's going after. So she goes down her own stairs that she's been up and down a million times in her life. And underneath, way down underneath in the crawl space under the bottom step, is it's dark and um, she she's looking in because she's hearing something and um, and she calls out and s calls out and says you know hello in there is someone in there yeah you uh, you know what's going on in there and uh, there's no answer but she hears more sniffling and noises so um, so then she looks down further and she says she can see the shadow of a little boy way down in the dark in the, in a, on a, you know, it's a, uh, it's a crawl space basically. It's dirty, it's dark, it's cold. And she's looking down in there and she calls to, calls to him and says, hey little boy, uh, come, what are you doing there? You know, are you okay? And then she says, um, you know, c let me help you out. You don't want to be in there. You're all in the dark all by yourself. You know, that's the, something wrong. And so she tries to get him out. The um, dark, the fact that you made some of the pages um, pitch black made me think of the monster under the bed or the monster in the closet, which she has the courage to confront. She didn't scream and run away. She didn't call her parents. She just 
she went into sprung into action, which was great. Yeah, yeah. She yeah. So this is the page you asked me to read next, all right? Oh, I think it's important to say what happened when she So she said, um, you know, come and take my hand, let me help you out of this cold, dark place. You don't belong here all alone. And she's concerned, and all of a sudden she hears, Go away. Not exactly the response she was no. expecting. But as we said about Elizabeth Warren, she perseveres, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So the page, Celia quickly pulled away from the hole and ran up the steps, shaken and confused. She didn't understand why the little boy yelled at her so angrily. Surely he needed help. When Celia heard his whimpering begin again, she decided she couldn't leave the little boy alone and would have to try to reach him. Facing the hole, Celia carefully crawled inside. Her heart thumped loudly as she felt her way through the darkness. I think um, this, this part would be particularly uh, vivid to children because this is taking a very strong and bold action, brave action, that, um, that I think kids aren't always sure they can do without a parent there with them. I thought the lack of parents in the book is very telling and is a critical part of its success. These are two kids doing this all on their own. Right, and I, I assumed she was of an age where she could make a decision. Right, because she said little boy, so you know there's a you know, yes. difference in age, but she's certainly far from an adult. No, right, right. Um, so then she goes down into the darkness, and um, uh, there's so many metaphors in this book, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I had a, th uh, um, a really highly regarded psychologist or psychiatrist actually read the book, and he came back to me, he goes, metaphor, 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 <laughs> metaphor. And I said, can I use any of the, I'm trying to get a, an endorsement, and he, he ends up, that, you know, does a whole uh, theory on the book. But I think, <laughs> you know, to set it, like you said, the first vision you had was stairs up and down. To set it under those stairs, it's not even under the stairs of a house mm -mm. where, you know, there's a certain amount of safety implied, but you're out in the world in a creepy space that really only the most desperate person or child would even think of inhabiting or right. going um, into. So. Right, right. I mean, this is so much about talking More about... More metaphors, right? Right. <laughs> but this is, uh, this, is, phew, this is the experience if you have to deal with depression. This is what, there's, it's, you, that's why this book is so, to me, vital. To me. <laughs> so um, anyway, uh, Celia, you know, goes up and then she goes down, into, I'm sorry, so then she goes down into the darkness and um, you didn't ask me to read that page, so I won't. Um, <laughs> Maybe I thought it was too dark, but. Okay, so she goes down into the darkness and she asks the little boy, why he doesn't want to come out. I mean, and he's still not engaging with her. Uh, she's kind of coming into his space. And he says, I, I hate the world. Which was kind of just brutal to hear and, and uh, brutal for her to hear too, I think. Well, ergo the back and forth, right. you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, Celia's response is, but why? I mean, total disbelief. And she says, it's, the world's a wondrous place, because that's what she believes. And he, and the response from him is, no, it's not. The world is a terrible place. People are mean, they lie, they don't care, 
Everything inside me hurts. I don't want to be here anymore. So uh, a pretty persuasive argument to either run away, get a parent, but still she, she hangs in there. Yeah. So the story goes on to explain why she responds to him, tells him a little bit about her experience with the world, which is not his experience with the world, which is the point counterpoint of this conversation. Um, and then uh, after she sh talks to him and and then uh, he yells at her and tells her that she's lying because it's not his experience. Right, that's all he's known. It's all, it's he, all he can it's see. It's all he can see. So she goes back up to the steps and she's pondering this terrible situation she's in, but she's she's been shook, but now she's thinking about it. And as she's up there trying to figure out what to do next, um, she, um, let's see, did you ask me to read this? No. She encounters, while she's sitting there, back on her step, a little inchworm. And so this little inchworm sits next to her, which she thinks is, you know, she just automatically engages with it because she's a kid and it's an inchworm. <laughs> and she starts <laughs> playing with the inchworm and saying to herself, this is, this is so cool. Look at him going up and down like a roller coaster. He's got this cute little body and isn't this fun? And then, and then she says to herself, you know, the world is wondrous because that's her take on it. And then she says, I didn't lie. I didn't lie. My grandfather didn't lie. I didn't lie. Um, and then she decides she's going to go down and show this. This will change him. This reality will, her reality will change his reality. So she picks up the little thing and runs downstairs and um, runs down to see him and she, and she begs him to come out of the dark so she can share what she's so excited about and he refuses. He says, I don't want it. I don't want it. He says, leave me alone. Leave me alone again. And, sh and this is where you told me to come in. Hunkered down in the darkness, the little boy felt very tired. He was not interested in anything Celia had to share. What he knew about the world made him feel sick all over. He wanted no more of it. He had had enough. Leave me alone, he called back to Celia. But Celia could not leave him alone this time. Please come. Come and see. Just open your eyes. That's all. Just look. Celia's plea drove the little boy to slowly move out of the darkness. She opened her palm and moved toward him. And then there's the interaction between the two of them. And um, she doesn't get the response from him that she feels. In fact, she gets the exact opposite. And it really sets her back. It sets her On back. her heels. Yeah. I thought that part was really valuable because it shows that one beam of light doesn't necessarily break up the darkness that you know it's a it's it's a long it's a long haul and a lot of effort i think and that's then that's truly what this whole story is paced about you know um i want it to be fixed too but that's not how it works um <clears throat> so you asked me to read this uh i just think it's important to note that when she saw the little boy and interacts with him again and she sees him for the first time, really sees him, because he's looking at her now, um, she becomes heartbroken. And she, um, she can feel his pain. She sees in him something that's pained, broken. And it, 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 it gets her. So then 
Once outside the hole, Celia collapsed against the foundation wall and sat, and sat trembling. The little boy's eyes spoke to her, and now Celia was haunted by a feeling inside. So that's, then we go into Celia's, Celia's demons, so to speak, the, the things that she's endured and tried to overcome, you know, joy and happy, and because she's a joyful human, um, she, it's easier for her to avoid going into places that are dark, and she's not, wasn't prepared. Absolutely right, yep. So, um, while Celia's outside thinking, then the little boy is uh, in the dark, uh, and while he's in the dark, feeling tired and sad, nothing has changed for him, he happens to glance on the ground and he sees this little inchworm that happened to have fallen out of Celia's hand, and there he was. So he spends the next whatever period watching this inchworm sort of moving. In, and it's moving in a little beam of light that was from a crack in the wall of the foundation. So it seemed to have a purpose or a direction. And it was not slowing down because it was in the dark. It was following this little beam of light to find its way out, basically. And after a while, the little boy realizes that the, um, the inchworm is undaunted by the obstacles it's stepping on, by the dirt, by anything. It just keeps going, and he observes it, and he starts to feel a little connection to the inchworm. And when the inchworm finally gets to the crack in the wall, where he's worked all his way out through down the foundation and all the way along the crawl space, and it's dirty, he goes up the wall, and then he goes to the crack, and the crack is so small that the inchworm can't get through it. So now the little boy decides, you know, to engage. And he engages, and he actually takes a rock and cracks the, the crack bigger so the inchworm can leave. And he has an interaction with the inchworm. Um, and while he's having the interaction with the inchworm, Celia is outside trying to come to terms with the darkness she's experiencing. <clears throat> and so the story goes, and Celia goes back into the dark, she comes out of her what she's feeling, and she immediately thinks of the little boy again because something's changed in her. So now she runs back into the dark. And then she um, settles in besides the little boy in the dark. And this is what you asked me. No, no, you didn't ask me to read. So she starts talking to him and saying she's sorry that she didn't, she didn't see what he saw. And um, he kind of didn't know how to communicate with her. He didn't know what that was about but he was listening. Um, <clears throat> so this is the page you want me to read. They sat together in silence. And this is a long sit together, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> then the little boy turned to Celia, and he asked, so why do we keep trying? And then the story goes where Celia brings her story to him and this time he's ready to hear it. And um, they come into a whole, the, the two of them together come into a whole new way of connecting. And it's not like they don't run off into the sunset together. It's obvious that um, this is a good, a good step, but you don't know what's going to happen. Steps can falter and situations can get dark again. But I think it was very valuable to have Celia 
go through her own patch of doubt and her own patch of darkness. Right. In the original vision I had, she kept bringing something down to the, the, this, this little boy or, and bringing light. And I, she kept bringing light and bringing light. And in the end game, after I thought about it, it's not really a one-sided story. Right. Yes, we needed to bring him light. But as the story evolved, I realized he was bringing, she, he was, she was grabbing some of the darkness. And then it was like this crossover. He got some light, she got some darkness, and they both... And so it was an exchange, It really. was an exchange, yes. And then at the very end, of course, you know, there's a moment of hope. Well, um, I'm afraid we're, we're getting low on time, but uh -huh. I would like viewers to know where they can get a copy of the book. What's Because sure. you're not up on Amazon yet. No, I'm working on it, so maybe by the time this airs, it will be, I hope to be. But right now, you can um, get um, my book at my website, which is irenebouchine.com. And um, at irenebouchine.com, you're going to see the first page says about the book. And there's a little story about the book. And then it says buy the book. And it just takes you to a very simple method where you can buy the book online. Okay, because I think um, I see this as being read by those constituencies, parents, uh, school people, psychologists. But I can also see a beautiful parent and child, brother Amen. and sister, um, reading of it, and then it opens up a, a lot of uh, points for discussion. discussion. Yeah, my, my goal, honestly, has been, if you ask anyone or see anything I've read or written so far since, is the, note, the, the goal is to start the conversation, bring this depression, which is rampant, out so that people can have conversations. I, I, I learned how to have it, but I know there's so many people out there that don't know how to have a conversation, and the children remain in the dark because they're not a, they're not connected and to something. And parents and the parents. The and I was a parent, them. right? I was so I think um, <coughs> really that uh, this is like an inchworm and a flashlight could be for um, even for people who want to know more about what depression is like. Yes. So I want to thank you so much for joining me today and uh, to see you again after 40 years is a joy <laughs> and I'm very, very proud of you thank for you. Um, for coming up with Celia and the little boy and thank for you. discussing it with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Book Stew viewers, um, we'll, I'll have some more information at the end of the episode about um, where you can get a copy of the book and maybe you know, reach out to Irene if you have some questions. And uh, have a good night.